and welcome to the AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey, and I am recording this episode from Freiburg, Germany. And as promised, today I am going to start reading The Workers' Opposition, which is a pamphlet written by Alexandra Kollontai in 1921, when there was internal dissent among the Bolsheviks about the future of the Soviet economy and how that economy was going to be organized. So this is a really important text in Alexandra Kollontai's life uh, because it is sort of her last real foray into Bolshevik politics. After this, she really embarks on her diplomatic career. And so this is the last attempt that she makes to really directly influence the future of the Bolshevik party while Vladimir Lenin is still alive. You know, she ends up going abroad, as you know, and she really then takes a backseat to the internal politics that are happening in Moscow and Petersburg. But before I get started, there's lots of stuff going on. Uh, Again, I'm doing this big book tour. I have this book rollout that has been a very strange experience. You know, everywhere I go, I talk to editors and other writers who are saying that the pandemic has really eviscerated newspaper and magazine and media coverage of books. And people were buying books in great numbers during the pandemic. And now those numbers are dropping off quite significantly, which is kind of interesting. Also, people's reading patterns have changed in the sense that the books that are selling are young adult books, children's books, cookbooks, you know, uh, serious adult nonfiction, not so much. People are really being attracted to romance and genre fiction. And it's just been really interesting to have these conversations with with editors and other writers. I was in Berlin last week, and I met my German editor at Zurkampf and, and got an earful about the state of the German publishing industry and everything that has been happening since 2020, 2021. Anyway, I have a couple of big events that are coming up. I'm doing the How To Academy in London. Uh, This is a virtual event with Angela Saini, the author of The Patriarchs, The Origins of Inequality, a book I cannot recommend highly enough. It's a it's a really fun book to especially if you've seen the Barbie movie and you are interested in the patriarchy not being about horses. That's an inside joke. If you have seen the Barbie movie, you will get it. Uh, if not, then it is an interesting reflection on patriarchy. It's very timely. And I think that Angela Saini's book does a really great job of explaining where patriarchy came from and how it gets perpetuated in our societies. So that's going to be a really fun conversation on August 3rd. I'm also doing the Second Life Book Club, which is also in World, that is online on August 9th. That's 12 o'clock San Francisco time. And then I have two actually in-person events in New York City. If you're in New York, please join me for a lecture at the Society for Ethical Culture at 11 o'clock on Sunday the 13th. And then I am going to be doing the Half King reading series at the Salmagundi Club on uh, August 15th. That's a Tuesday. I believe that's at 7 p.m. And I'll link to 
all of those events in the show notes to the show. So if you're interested, there are online options, there are in-person options, lots of things are, are going on. And I have a lot more events that are coming up in the fall. And some great media that I've also been doing podcasts. I did the Vox podcast with Sean Illing and the Wired podcast, their flagship podcast, as well as a guest appearance on Everyday Anarchism and a few other, you know, pokers that I have in the fire that I think are going to be interesting. So when those become available, I'll also link to those. But otherwise, the the book rollout has been, you know, it's it is what it is. It's happening. And I realize that a lot of people in the summer are not really that keen to read serious nonfiction. But you know, if you're interested in 2,500 years of utopian experiments about how we could rearrange our domestic lives, something that Alexandra Kollontai would have been very much in favor of, then please do take the opportunity to check out Everyday Utopia, What 2,000 Years of Wild Experiments Can Teach Us About the Good Life, which has a different subtitle in the UK and will have an even different subtitle in Germany. But it is available as an audiobook. It's you know available on Kindle. Uh, but definitely, if you, you know if you have a subscription to Audible, you can also listen to it. I do not read it. Uh, there's a professional narrator who does a much better job of reading it than I would. But it is. I, I actually listened to it, and I was really pleased with the narration. So if you are an audiobook person, you know, please check it out as well. Okay. Enough of my waffling about my book, and let's get to individual or collective management. Question mark. This is the first section of Alexander Kollontai's The Workers' Opposition. Before making clear what the cause is of the ever-widening break between the workers' opposition and the official point of view held by our directing centers, it is necessary to call attention to two facts. One, the workers' opposition sprang from the depths of the industrial proletariat of Soviet Russia. It is an outgrowth not only of the unbearable conditions of life and labor in which 7 million industrial workers find themselves, but it is also a product of vacillation, inconsistencies, and outright deviations of our Soviet policy from the clearly expressed class-consistent principles of the communist program. Two, the opposition did not originate in some particular center, was not a fruit of personal strife and controversy, but, on the contrary, covers the whole extent of Soviet Russia and meets with a resonant response. At present, there prevails an opinion that the whole root of the controversy arising between the workers' opposition and the numerous currents noticeable among the leaders consists exclusively in differences of opinion regarding the problems that confront the trade unions. This, however, is not true. The break goes deeper. Representatives of the opposition are not always able clearly to express and define it. But as soon as some vital question of the reconstruction of our republic is touched upon, controversies arise concerning a whole area of cardinal economic and political questions. For the first time, the two different points of view, 
as expressed by the leaders of our party and the representatives of our class-organized workers, found their reflection at the Ninth Congress of our party when that body was discussing the question, Collective versus Personal Management in Industry. At that time, there was no opposition from any well-formed group, but it is very significant that collective management was favored by all the representatives of the trade unions, while opposed to it were all the leaders of our party, who are accustomed to appraise all events from the institutional angle. They require a good deal of shrewdness and skill to placate the socially heterogeneous and sometimes politically hostile aspirations of the different social groups of the population as expressed by proletarians, petty owners, peasantry, and bourgeois in the person of specialists and pseudo-specialists of all kinds and degrees. Why was it that only the unions stubbornly defended the principles of collective management, even without being able to adduce scientific arguments in favor of it? And why was it that the specialist supporters at the same time defended the one-man management? The reason is that in this controversy, though both sides emphatically denied that there was a question of principle involved, two historically irreconcilable points of view had clashed. The one-man management is a product of the individualist conception of the bourgeois class. The one-man management is, in principle, an unrestricted, isolated free will of one man disconnected from the collective. This idea finds its reflection in all spheres of human endeavor, beginning with the appointment of a sovereign for the state and ending with a sovereign director of the factory. This is the supreme wisdom of bourgeois thought. The bourgeoisie do not believe in the power of a collective body. They like to whip the masses into an obedient flock and drive them wherever their unrestricted will desires. The working class and its spokesmen, on the contrary, realize that the new communist aspirations can be obtained only through the collective efforts of the workers themselves. The more the masses are developed in the expression of their collective will and common thought, the quicker and more complete will be the realization of working class aspirations, for it will create a new, homogenous, unified, perfectly arranged communist industry. Only those who are directly bound to industry can introduce into it animating innovations. Rejection of a principle, the principle of collective management in the control of industry, was a tactical compromise on behalf of our party, an act of adaptation. It was, moreover, an act of derivation from that class policy which we so zealously cultivated and defended during that first phase of the revolution. Why did this happen? How did it happen that our party, matured and tempered in the struggle of the revolution, was permitted to be carried away from the direct road, 
in order to journey along the roundabout path of adaptation. Formerly condemned overtly and branded as opportunism. The answer to this question we shall give later. Meanwhile, we shall turn to the question, how did the workers' opposition form and develop? So that's this first section. And basically, Colin Tai is laying out here the kind of parameters of the debate. This is not necessarily a debate just about the role of the trade unions, which is what the party leaders want to make it sound like, but it's basically a fundamental debate over whether or not industry should be led by bosses, by specialists, by members of the bourgeoisie, or whether industry should be collectively managed by the workers themselves, which is by the way, what the Bolsheviks had promised, it was the basic fundamental idea of Bolshevism in those early years of the revolution. And then because of war communism, and because of the need to kind of jumpstart the Soviet economy, they reverted to this sort of new economic policy, which I've talked about on the podcast before, But basically, the idea is that rather than leaving the workers in charge of industry, the party leaders wanted to appoint specialists. So now in this second section, called the growth of the workers' opposition, Colin Tai is going to give us a little bit of inside baseball about what was happening within the party and who has taken different views on this question versus individual versus collective management. All right, so here's the inside baseball part of this document. The growth of the workers' opposition. The Ninth Congress of the Russian Communist Party was held in the spring of 1920. During the summer, the apportion did not assert itself. Nothing was heard about it during the stormy debates that took place at the Second Congress of the Communist International. But deep at the bottom, there was taking place an accumulation of experience of critical thought. The first expression of this process, incomplete at the time, was at the party conference in September of 1920. For a time, the thought preoccupied itself largely with rejection and criticisms. The opposition had no well-formulated proposals of its own. But it was obvious that the party was entering into a new phase of its life. Within its ranks, lower elements demanded freedom of criticism, loudly proclaiming that bureaucracy strangles them, leaves no freedom for activity or for manifestation of initiative. The leaders of the party understood this undercurrent, and Comrade Zinoviev made many verbal promises as to freedom of criticism widening of the scope of self-activity for the masses, persecution of leaders deviating from the principles of democracy, etc. A great deal was said and well said, but from words to deeds there is a considerable distance. The September conference, together with Zinovia's much-promising speech, has changed nothing either in the party itself or in the life of the masses. The root from which the opposition sprouts was not destroyed. Down at the bottom, a growth of particulate dissatisfaction, criticism, and independence was taking place. This inarticulate ferment was noted by even the party leaders, and it quite unexpectedly generated sharp controversies. 
It is significant that in the central party bodies, sharp controversies arose concerning the part that must be played by the trade unions. This, however, is only natural. At present, this subject of controversy between the opposition and the party leaders, while not being the only one, is still the cardinal point of our whole domestic policy. Long before the workers' opposition had appeared with its theses and formed that basis on which, in its opinion, the dictatorship of the proletariat must rest, in the sphere of industrial reconstruction, the leaders in the party had sharply disagreed in their appraisal of the part that is to be played by the working class organizations regarding the latter's participation in the reconstruction of industries on a communist basis. The Central Committee of the party split into groups. Comrade Lenin stood in opposition to Trotsky, while Bukharin took the middle grounds. Only at the 8th Soviet Congress, and immediately after it, did it become obvious that within the party itself, there was a united group kept together primarily by the theses of principles concerning the trade unions. This group, the opposition, having no great theoreticians, and in spite of a most resolute resistance from the most popular leaders of the party, was growing strong and spreading all over laboring Russia. Was it only so in Petrograd in Moscow? Not at all. Even from the Donetsk Basin, the Ural Mountains, Siberia, and a number of other industrial centers came reports to the Central Committee that there also the workers' opposition was forming and acting. It is true that not everywhere does the opposition find itself in complete accord on all points with the workers of Moscow. At times there is much indefiniteness, pettiness, and absurdity in the expressions, demands, and motives of the opposition. Even the cardinal points may differ. Yet there is everywhere one unalterable point— and this is the question. Who shall develop the creative powers in the sphere of economic reconstruction? Shall it be purely class organs, directly connected by vital ties with the industries? That is, shall industrial unions undertake the work of reconstruction? Or shall it be left to the Soviet machine, which is separated from direct vital industrial activity and is axed in its composition? This is the root of the break. The workers' opposition defends the first principle, where the leaders of the party, whatever their differences on various secondary matters, are in complete accord on the cardinal point and defend the second principle. What does this mean? This means that our party lives through its first serious crisis of the revolutionary period and that the opposition is not to be driven away by such a cheap name as syndicalism, but that all comrades must consider this in all seriousness. Who is right? The leaders or the working masses endowed with a healthy class instinct? Okay, that's the end of the second section, and I'm going to stop reading from the workers' opposition for this episode. And clearly here, this reference to syndicalism is a accusation of anarchism coming from the party leaders, coming from Lenin and Trotsky and Bukharin and Zinoviev, these old Bolsheviks that are still in control of the party. 
And Colin Ty with her comrades, Shlapnikov and others are basically arguing that they are trying to take away the initiative for reconstructing the Soviet economy from the workers and to institute this really sort of top-down system, which Kolontai sees as completely anathema to the original goals of the revolution. So she's also mentioning here that many of the workers called for the ability to freely criticize the party leaders, to freely express their disagreements. And already in 1921, you can see the move towards a much more centralized authoritarian view towards criticism. And as you know, uh, from the last episode where I talked about the historical context of this document, Kolontai is really on the front lines of saying, if we cannot criticize each other within the party, if we cannot disagree, then this is no longer a democracy, this is no longer participatory, and ultimately this is going to slide into some kind of centralized, uh, almost czarist form of authoritarianism, which, as we know, it does. So it's an interesting historical moment. And I think this is a really fascinating and important document. And I will pick up reading the causes of the crisis in the next episode. So as always, thank you so much for listening and keep up the good fight. (laughs) 